Section 6. Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Section 6. Boys in the Army. As I walked home about sunset, I saw in 14th Street a very young soldier, thinly clad, standing near the house I was about to enter. I stopped a moment in front of the door and called him to me. I knew that an old Tennessee regiment and also an Indiana regiment were temporarily stopping in new barracks near 14th Street. This boy I found belonged to the Tennessee regiment but I could hardly believe he carried a musket. He was but fifteen years old, yet had been twelve months soldier, and had borne his part in several battles, even historic ones. I asked him if he did not suffer from the cold, and if he had no overcoat. No, he did not suffer from cold, and had no overcoat, but he could draw one whenever he wished. His father was dead, and his mother living in some part of East Tennessee. All the men were from that part of the country. The next forenoon I saw the Tennessee and Indiana regiments marching down the avenue. My boy was with the former, stepping along with the rest. There were many other boys, no older. I stood and watched them as they tramped along with slow, strong, heavy, regular steps. There did not appear to be a man over thirty years of age, and a large proportion were from fifteen to perhaps twenty-two or twenty-three. They had all the look of veterans, worn, stained, impassive, and a certain unbent, lounging gait, carrying in addition to their regular arms and knapsacks, frequently a frying pan, broom, etc., they were all a pleasant physiognomy, no refinement, nor blanched with intellect, but as my eye picked them, moving along, rank by rank, there did not seem to be a single repulsive, brutal, or markedly stupid face among them. Burial of a Lady Nurse Here is an incident just occurred in one of the hospitals. A lady named Miss or Mrs. Billings, who has long been a practical friend of soldiers, a nurse in the army, and had become attached to it in a way that no one can realise but him or her who has had experience, was taken sick early this winter, lingered some time, and finally died in the hospital. It was her request that she should be buried among the soldiers, and after the military method. This request was fully carried out. Her coffin was carried to the grave by the soldiers, with the usual escort, buried, and a salute fired over the grave. This was at Annapolis a few days since. Female Nurses for Soldiers There are many women in one position or another among the hospitals, mostly as nurses here in Washington and among the military stations, quite a number of them young ladies acting as volunteers. 
They are a help in certain ways, and deserve to be mentioned with respect then it remains to be distinctly said that few or no young ladies, under the irresistible conventions of society, answer the practical requirements of nurses for soldiers. Middle-aged or healthy and good-conditioned elderly women, mothers of children, are always best. Many of the wounded must be handled. A hundred things which cannot be gainsaid must occur and must be done. The presence of a good middle-aged or elderly woman, the magnetic touch of hands, the expressive features of the mother, the silent soothing of her presence, her words, her knowledge and privileges arrived at only through having had children, are precious and final qualifications. It is a natural faculty that is required. It is not merely having a genteel young woman at a table in a ward. One of the finest nurses I met was a red-faced, illiterate old Irish woman. I have seen her take the poor wasted naked boys so tenderly up in her arms. There are plenty of excellent clean old black women that would make tip-top nurses. Southern Escapees February 23, 65. I saw a large procession of young men from the rebel army. Deserters, they are called, but the usual meaning of the word does not apply to them. Passing the avenue today, there were nearly two hundred, come up yesterday by boat from James River. I stood and watched them as they shuffled along, in a slow, tired, worn sort of way a large proportion of light-haired, blonde, light-grey-eyed young men among them. Their costumes had a dirt-stained uniformity. Most had been originally grey. Some had articles of our uniform, pants on, vest or coat on another. I think they were mostly Georgia and North Carolina boys. They excited little or no attention. As I stood quite close to them, several good-looking enough youths, but, oh, what a tale of misery their appearance told, nodded or just spoke to me, without doubt divining pity and fatherliness out of my face, for my heart was full enough of it. Several of the couples trudged along, with their arms about each other, some probably brothers, as if they were afraid they might somehow get separated. They nearly all looked what one might call simple, yet intelligent too. Some had pieces of old carpet, some blankets, and other old bags around their shoulders. Some of them here and there had fine faces. Still it was a procession of misery. The two hundred had with them about half a dozen armed guards. Along this week I saw some such procession more or less in numbers every day, as they were brought up by the boat. The government does what it can for them, and sends them north and west. February 27. Some three or four hundred more escapees from the Confederate Army came up on the boat. As the day has been very pleasant indeed, after a long spell of bad weather, I have been wandering around a good deal, without any other object 
happened to be outdoors and enjoy it, have met these escaped men in all directions. Their apparel is the same ragged, long-worn motley as before described. I talked with a number of the men. Some are quite bright and stylish, for all their poor clothes, walking with an air, wearing their old head coverings on one side, quite saucily. I find the old, unquestionable proofs, as all along the past four years, of the unscrupulous tyranny exercised by the succession government in conscripting the common people by absolute force everywhere, and paying no attention whatever to the men's time being up, keeping them in military service just the same. One gigantic young fellow, a Georgian, at least six feet three inches high, broad-sized in proportion, attired in the dirtiest drab, well-smeared rags, tied with strings, his trousers at the knees all strips and streamers, was complacently standing eating some bread and meat. He appeared contented enough. Then a few minutes after I saw him slowly walking along, it was plain he did not take anything to heart. February 28. As I passed the military headquarters of the city, not far from the President's house, I stopped to interview some of the crowd of escapees who were lounging there. In appearance they were the same as previously mentioned. Two of them, one about seventeen, and the other perhaps twenty-five or six, I talked with some time. They were from North Carolina, born and raised there, and had folks there. The elder had been in the rebel service four years. He was first conscripted for two years. He was then kept arbitrarily in the ranks. This is the case with a large proportion of the secession army. There was nothing downcast in these young men's manners. The younger had been soldiering about a year. He was conscripted. There were six brothers, all the boys of the family, in the army, part of them as conscripts, part as volunteers. Three had been killed. One had escaped about four months ago, and now this one had got away. He was a pleasant and well-talking lad, with the peculiar North Carolina idiom, not at all disagreeable to my ears. He and the elder one were of the same company, and escaped together, and wished to remain together. They thought of getting transportation away to Missouri, and working there, but were not sure it was judicious. I advised them rather to go to some of the directly northern states, and get farm work for the present. The younger had made six dollars on the boat, with some tobacco he brought. He had three and a half left. The elder had nothing. I gave him a trifle. Soon after, met John Wormley, Ninth Alabama, a West Tennessee raised boy, parents both dead, and the look of one for a long time on short allowance, said very little, chewed tobacco at a fearful rate, spitting in proportion, large clear dark brown eyes, very fine, didn't know what to make of me, told me at last he wanted much to get some clean underclothes, and a pair of decent pants, didn't care about coat or hat fixings, 
wanted a chance to wash himself well, and put on the underclothes. I had the very great pleasure of helping him to accomplish all those wholesome designs. March 1st. Plenty more butternut or clay-coloured escapees every day. About 160 came in today, a large portion South Carolinians. They generally take the oath of allegiance, and are sent north, west, or extreme southwest, if they wish. Several of them told me that the desertions in their army of men going home, leave or no leave, are far more numerous than their desertions to our side. I saw a very forlorn-looking squad of about a hundred, late this afternoon, on their way to the Baltimore depot. The Capitals by Gaslight Tonight I have been wandering a while in the capital, which is all lit up. The illuminated rotunda looks fine. I like to stand aside and look a long, long while up at the dome. It comforts me somehow. The House and Senate were both in session till very late. I looked in upon them, but only a few moments. They were hard at work on tax and appropriation bills. I wandered through the long and rich corridors and departments under the Senate, an old habit of mine former winters, and now more satisfaction than ever. Not many persons down there, occasionally a flitting figure, in the distance. The Inauguration March 4th The President very quietly rode down to the Capitol in his own carriage, by himself, on a sharp trot, about noon, either because he wished to be on hand to sign bills, or to get rid of marching in line with the absurd procession, the Muslim Temple of Liberty and Pastorboard Monitor. I saw him on his return at three o'clock, after the performance was over. He was in his plain two-horse barouche, and looked very much worn and tired, the lines, indeed, of vast responsibilities, intricate questions, and demands of life and death cut deeper than ever upon his dark brown face, yet all the old goodness, tenderness, sadness, and canny shrewdness underneath the furrows. I never see the man without feeling that he is one to become personally attached to, for his combination of purest, heartiest tenderness, and native western form of manliness. By his side sat his little boy of ten years. There were no soldiers, only a lot of civilians on horseback, with huge yellow scarves over their shoulders, riding around the carriage. At the inauguration four years ago, he rode down and back again, surrounded by a dense mass of armed cavalry men eight deep, with drawn sabres, and there were sharpshooters stationed at every corner on the route. I ought to make mention of the closing levy of Saturday night last. Never before was such a compact jam in front of the White House. All the grounds filled, and a way out to the spacious sidewalks. I was there, as I took a notion to go, was in the rush inside with the crowd, surged along the passageways, the blue and other rooms, and through the great east room. 
crowds of country people, some very funny, fine music from the marine band, off in a side place. I saw Mr. Lincoln, dressed all in black, with white kid gloves and a claw hammer coat, receiving, as in duty bound, shaking hands, looking very disconsolate, and as if he would give anything to be somewhere else. Attitude of Foreign Governments During the War Looking over my scraps, I find I wrote the following during 1864. The happening to our America, abroad as well as at home, these years is indeed most strange. The Democratic Republic has paid her today the terrible and resplendent compliment of the united wish of all the nations of the world that her union should be broken, her future cut off, and that she should be compelled to descend to the level of kingdoms and empires ordinarily great. There is certainly not one government in Europe but is now watching the war in this country, with the ardent prayer that the United States may be effectually split, crippled, and dismembered by it. There is not one but would help toward the dismemberment if it dared. I say such is the ardent wish to-day of England and of France, as governments, and of all the nations of Europe, as governments. I think indeed it is to-day the real, heartfelt wish of all the nations of the world, with the single exception of Mexico, Mexico, the only one to whom we have ever really done wrong, and now the only one who prays for us and for our triumph with genuine prayer. It is not indeed strange. America, made up of all, cheerfully from the beginning opening her arms to all, the result and justifier of all, of Britain, Germany, France and Spain, all here, the acceptor, the friend, hope, last resource and general house of all, she who has harmed none, but been bounteous to so many, to millions, the mother of strangers and exiles, all nations, should now, I say, be paid this dread compliment of general governmental fear and hatred. Are we indignant, alarmed? Do we feel jeopardized? No helped, braced, concentrated, rather? We are all too prone to wander from ourselves, to affect Europe, and watch her frowns and smiles. We need this hot lesson of general hatred, and henceforth must never forget it. Never again will we trust the moral sense, nor abstract friendliness of a single government of the whole world. The weather does it sympathize with these times. Whether the rains, the heat and cold, and what underlies them all, are affected with what affects man in masses, and follow his play of passionate action, strained stronger than usual, and on a larger scale than usual, whether this or not is a certain that there is now, and has been for twenty months or more, on this American continent north, many a remarkable, many an unprecedented expression of the subtile world of air above us and around us. There, since this war, and the wide and deep national agitation, strange analogies, 
different combinations, at different sunlight, or absence of it, different products even out of the ground. After every great battle, a great storm, even civic events the same. On Saturday last, a forenoon like whirling demons, dark, with slanting rain, full of rage, and then the afternoon, so calm, so bathed, with flooding splendour from heaven's most excellent sun, with atmosphere of sweetness so clear, it showed the stars long, long before they were due. As the President came out on the Capitol portico, a curious little white cloud, the only one in that part of the sky, appeared like a hovering bird right over him. Indeed, the heavens, the elements, all the meteorological influences, have run right for weeks past. Such caprices, abruptest, alternation of frowns and beauty, I never knew. It is a common remark that, as last summer was different in its spells of intense heat from any preceding it, the winter just completed has been without parallel. It has remained so down to the hour I am writing. Much of the daytime of the past month was sulky, with leaden heaviness, fog, interstices of bitter cold, and some insane storms. But there have been samples of another description. Nor earth nor sky ever knew spectacles of super-bare beauty than some of the nights lately here. The western star, Venus, in the earlier hours of evening, has never been so large, so clear. It seems as if it told something, as if it held rapport indulgent with humanity, with us Americans. Five or six nights since it hung close by the moon, then a little past its first quarter. The star was wonderful, the moon like a young mother. The sky, dark blue, the transparent night, the planets, the moderate west wind, the elastic temperature, the miracle of that great star, and the young and swelling moon swimming in the west, suffused the soul. Then I heard, slow and clear, the deliberate notes of a bugle come up out of the silence, sounding so good through the night's mystery, no hurry, but firm and faithful, floating along, rising, falling leisurely, with here and there a long-drawn note, the bugle, well played, sounding tattoo, in one of the army hospitals near here, where the wounded, some of them personally so dear to me, are lying in their cots, and many a sick boy come down to the war from Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, and the rest. Inauguration Ball March 6. I have been up to look at the dance and supper rooms for the inauguration ball at the patent office, and I could not help thinking what a different scene they presented to my view a while since filled with a crowded mass of the worst wounded of the war, brought in from Second Bull Run, Antietam, and Fredericksburg. Tonight, beautiful women, perfumes, the violin sweetness, the poker and the waltz, then the amputation, the blue face, the groan, the glassy eye of the dying, the clotted rag, the odour of wounds and blood, and many a mother's son amid strangers, 
passing away untended there, for the crowd of the badly hurt was great, and much for nurse to do, and much for surgeon. SCENE AT THE CAPITAL I must mention a strange scene at the Capitol, the Hall of Representatives, the morning of Saturday last, March 4th. The day just dawned, but in half-darkness, everything dim, leaden, and soaking. In that dim light, the members nervous from long-drawn duty, exhausted, some asleep, and many half-asleep. The gaslight, mixed with the dingy daybreak, produced an unearthly effect. The poor little sleepy, stumbling pages, the smell of the hall, the members with heads leaning on their desks, the sounds of the voices speaking, with unusual intonations, the general moral atmosphere also of the close of this important session, the strong hope that the war is approaching its close, the tantalizing dread lest the hope may be a false one, the grandeur of the hall itself, with its effect of vast shadows up towards the panels and spaces over the galleries, all made a marked combination. In the midst of this, with the suddenness of a thunderbolt, burst one of the most angry and crashing storms of rain and hail ever heard. It beat like a deluge on the heavy glass roof of the hall, and the wind literally howled and roared, for a moment, and no wonder, the nervous and sleeping representatives were thrown into confusion. The slumberers awaked with fear. Some started for the doors, some looked up with blanched cheeks and lips to the roof, and the little pages began to cry. It was a scene. But it was over almost as soon as the drowsy men were actually awake. They recovered themselves. The storm raged on, beating, dashing, and with loud noises at times. But the house went ahead with its business then, I think, as calmly and with as much deliberation as at any time in its career. Perhaps the shock did it good. One is not without impression, after all, amid these members of Congress, of both the houses, that if the flat routine of their duties should ever be broken in upon by some great emergency involving real danger and calling for first-class personal qualities, those qualities would be found generally forthcoming and from men not now credited with them. A Yankee Antique March 27, 1865 Sergeant Kelvin F. Harlow, Company C, 29, Massachusetts, 3rd Brigade, 1st Division, 9th Corps, a marked sample of heroism and death, some may say bravado, but I say heroism, of grandest, oldest order. In the late attack by the rebel troops, and temporary capture by them, of Fort Steadman at night, the fort was surprised at dead of night. Suddenly awakened from their sleep, and rushing from their tents, Harlow, with others, found himself in the hands of a Sikhish. They demanded his surrender. He answered, Never while I live. Of course it was useless. The others surrendered. The odds were too great. Again he was asked to yield. 
this time by a rebel captain. Though surrounded and quite calm, he again refused, called sternly to his comrades to fight on, and himself attempted to do so. The rebel captain then shot him, but at the same instant he shot the captain. Both fell together mortally wounded. Harlow died almost instantly. The rebels were driven out in a very short time. The body was buried next day, but soon taken up and sent home, Plymouth County Mass. Harlow was only twenty-two years of age, was a tall, slim, dark-haired, blue-eyed young man, had come out originally with the twenty-ninth, and that is the way he met his death after four years' campaign. He was in the seven days' fight before Richmond, in Second Bull Run, Antietam, First Fredericksburg, Vicksburg, Jackson, Wilderness, and the campaigns following, was as good a soldier as ever were the blue, and every old officer in the regiment will bear that testimony. Though so young and in a common rank, he had a spirit as resolute and brave as any hero in the books, ancient or modern. It was too great to say the words, I surrender, and so he died. When I think of such things, knowing them well, all the vast and complicated events of the war, on which history dwells and makes its volumes, fall aside, and for the moment, at any rate, I see nothing but young Kelvin Harlow's figure in the night, disdaining to surrender. Wounds and Diseases the war is over, but the hospitals are fuller than ever from former and current cases. A large majority of the wounds are in the arms and legs, but there is every kind of wound in every part of the body. I should say of the sick, from my observation, that the prevailing maladies are typhoid fever and the camp fevers generally, diarrhoea, cataral affections and bronchitis rheumatism, and pneumonia. These forms of sickness leave, all the rest follow. There are twice as many sick as there are wounded. The deaths range from 7 to 10 per cent of those under treatment. Footnote. In the U.S. Surgeon's General Office since, there is a formal record and treatment of 153. 142 cases of wounds by government surgeons. What must have been the number unofficial, indirect to say nothing of the southern armies? Death of President Lincoln April 1665 I find in my notes of the time this passage on the death of Abraham Lincoln. He leaves for America's history and biography so far not only its most dramatic reminiscence. He leaves, in my opinion, the greatest, best, most characteristic, artistic, moral personality, not but that he had faults, and showed them in the presidency, but honesty, goodness, shrewdness, conscience, and a new virtue unknown to other lands, and hardly yet really known here, but the foundation and tie of all, as the future will grandly develop. Unionism, in its truest and amplest sense, 
formed the hard pan of his character. These he sealed with his life, the tragic splendour of his death, purging, illuminating all, throws round his form, his head, an aureole that will remain and will grow brighter through time, while history lives and love of country lasts. By many has this union been helped, but if one name, one man, must be picked out, he, most of all, is the conservator of it to the future. He was assassinated, but the union is not assassinated. Caera, one falls and another falls. The soldier drops, sinks like a wave, but the ranks of the ocean eternally press on. Death does its work, obliterates a hundred, a thousand, president, general, captain, private, but the nation is immortal. End of section 6